Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. And greetings from Kalamata in the Peloponnese region of Greece. Uh, this program is not live uh, because of the uh, the time zone difference. Seven hours between Toronto and Greece. So I've pre-recorded this show earlier today. Now, next week on the program, guest host Donald Jeffries will be here, the author of Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, and Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics. Again, he'll be guest hosting, and he'll speak with investigative journalist at large, Janet Phelan, about her explosive new book, At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic. In the second hour, Don will interview a former employee and blackjack dealer at the legendary Dunes Hotel and Casino. And he'll talk about the hotel and casino's origins, its connections to the mob, and some of the celebrities and wonderful characters who frequented the Dunes Hotel in its heyday. Micah Hanks is here for Hour 1. Micah, a frequent guest host on Coast to Coast AM, a writer, researcher, producer. He'll be here to discuss a recent trip to Brazil to study the UFO phenomena down there and the state of UFO disclosure in America. In the second hour... Author, martial artist, survivalist Stefan Verstappen will be here to discuss a very important subject, how to form communities in times of social disorder. Since an early age, Micah Hanks has held a long fascination with the more unique scientific mysteries the world has to offer. A self-proclaimed but not self-righteous skeptic, Micah works as a writer and researcher, as well as a radio personality whose work addresses a variety of unexplained phenomena. He's the author of several books, including Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past, and The UFO Singularity. Micah Hanks, the Micah Hanks program. How do we listen? Well, you can find me, of course, there at micahanks.com. You're kind of a, a psychonaut in my estimation. And what I mean by that is we have outer space, of course. And I know you're very interested in exploring the UFO phenomenon and ETs and, and space in general, the science involved in exploring outer space. But also, I, I, I look at you as an explorer of inner space. What are your thoughts? I appreciate that notion, actually. I guess for anyone who's unfamiliar with that expression, psychonaut, I would, of course, say, I think you got the psycho part right. No, I'm kidding. But you know, <laughs> for anyone who is unfamiliar with that, this generally entails a person who explores consciousness, but often it is suggestive of you know using substances or something, entheogens, God-releasing molecules and, and substances and things along those lines, which really, in the anthropological sense of things, is something that people have done for thousands and thousands of years. Now, I actually generally don't do that. I am a pretty straight-laced guy. Uh, the uh, strongest drug I is coffee. Richard. <laughs> but <laughs> Same here. I am very interested in the idea of consciousness, altered states of consciousness, meditation, these kinds of things. And I also think that throughout history, there are a lot of interesting aspects of psychology that come out in our mythologies, in our you know folklore, and in, of course, religious traditions. These things all fascinate me. 
And there is a bit of a parallel to the more scientific, tangible side of my interest, which is really where my focus is primarily these days with all of the UFO talk, and I'm sure we'll get into plenty of that in a moment. If we look throughout history, I would contend that people have whatever UFOs may represent, or UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, as the military here in the States prefers to call them these days, but whatever they may be, and I think that there are a lot of things that they actually represent. I think that there's a time-honored human experience of looking into the sky, seeing things that we can't identify, and then trying to reckon with that, reckon with the possibilities. And so often in the ancient past, when people saw unidentified aerial phenomena, they did relate to it in religious terms. Now, an astronomer today might look back in some of those cases and say, well, now with you know a Stellarium program, we can look back, we can chart exactly what was in the sky at that time, and looking due east from said city, we know this observer hundreds of years ago was looking at the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, and it would have looked incredible in the sky and very unusual to them, very bright. No doubt that's what they were looking at. I don't think that's always. There are still some unexplainables that are recorded throughout history, which are intriguing, even if we'll never really know what they were. But what we do know is that people would often have these experiences of seeing those objects and say, angels, God, a sign, a portent, a prodigy. They've been called many things throughout time. But again, that mystical side of the human experience of seeing something we don't understand and then trying to ascribe agency to it and to come to terms with it almost in a religious way, that is very real and it's still very real today as part of the modern UFO experience in many ways. We may have replaced the name. Angels and demons may now be aliens, you know, or Russia or China, depending on who you're asking. But the time-honored experience of we saw something, we don't know what it is, let's speculate, lives on. You wrote about this previously in Magic Mysticism and the Molecule. And I guess you were touching on the molecule earlier when we were talking about certain methods of achieving these altered states, whether it's a DMT or ayahuasca. But what do you mean by the molecule? You're right on right there in the way that you phrased that. I actually mean, and in the title of the book, Magic Mysticism of the Molecule, I'm looking at, again, the idea in ancient times prior to science, okay, in pre-scientific, in fact, actually prehistoric times, people who would engage in ritual practices in an effort to try and bend nature to their will. Mysticism is, as time goes on, people begin to ask deeper questions about, well, what is really going on? Who am I? What is me? I mean, what does it mean to be alive? And we look at the esoteric traditions and the philosophies that begin to kind of grow out of these sorts of practices, religious practices as well. And then we also look at something that, as we mentioned earlier, very ancient, the idea of inducing an altered state of consciousness chemically using any number of different what are often termed entheogenic or God-releasing molecules, but they're actually usually found in plants. One of the most well-known today is ayahuasca or yage. Again, Amazonian shaman have used for centuries, thousands of years in fact, and there's anthropological evidence that archaeologists have actually uncovered that substantiates the idea that this has been used for a long time. But different chemical compounds that are capable of inducing an altered state, which also gives us a glimpse of the other side of reality, and this, of course, a part of religious or mystical practices uh, that such groups have used. That's really what the name of the book is talking about. The reason I was interested in altered states of consciousness is, but again, in addition to the idea of UAP being a time-honored human experience, 
the human pursuit of questions as to whether we are alone in the universe, most would think of in terms of our modern Eddie programs, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And again, it's pretty obvious probably to the listener. I'm fascinated with the idea of here's how now with science and the tools that science provides us. But many of us throughout time have asked similar questions. We went about trying to find answers in different ways. And so from an anthropological perspective, I'm really interested in the idea of ritual, mystical practices, and the use of entheogens by different indigenous groups in parts of the world to essentially ask a lot of the same questions. Are we alone in the universe? Are there other experiences with non-human intelligences that can be reached? And what can we learn about ourselves through trying to reach these things? Now, again, the modern scientists would probably say that these experiences, like, for instance, if one goes to the Amazon and they take ayahuasca and they have a powerful visionary experience as the dimethyltryptamine is coursing through their veins and they are you know, seeing these kaleidoscopic visual hallucinations, again, a scientist today would say, and that's exactly what that is, it's a hallucination. I would nonetheless maintain maybe we can still learn some things about ourselves, but traditional perspectives, uh, in contrast to the modern scientific attitude, would look at that differently. They would say, we may be able to commune with our ancestors, we may be able to commune with other intelligences, or perhaps even the intelligence of the plant itself. So anthropologically, I'm fascinated with that human pursuit of not only whether we are alone in the universe and whether there are other forms of intelligence, but what we can learn about ourselves through those kinds of pursuits. Obviously, countless people have had experiences with the unknown, the paranormal, supernatural, otherworldly, without the use of ayahuasca. How do we explain that? Does that DMT molecule or some other agency exist in all of us in significant amounts to allow for experiences or what they used to call, you know, the age of miracles? Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. I'll preface my answer by saying that, you know, in recent months, actually recent weeks, I traveled to South America and it had been my intention actually while there to try to, in a very controlled setting, with the Union de Vegetal Church there in Brazil, I had hoped to actually partake in ayahuasca to have a bit of this experience myself. Now, with the concerns about COVID-19, that was not available during the period I was there, and I hope in the future when I return to Brazil, a place I definitely hope to spend time in the future, that this will be something that's available. Again, I'm not a recreational user of substances by any means, despite my love for coffee, but I'm interested in the what you might call the ethnobotanical and the anthropological side of all this. But despite having actually had no real experience along those lines myself while I was there, on my way back from Brazil, an interesting thing happened. And this coming back to the question of, does DMT exist in our bodies? Are there ways that with or without a chemical substance inducing that experience, similar experiences can be achieved? First, yes, DMT does exist in our bodies. That is part of what kind of got me into this area of research and what interests me about it. And yes, there are some ways that practitioners of mystical arts have said that it may be capable of inducing what one would call a endogenous mystical experience by perhaps tapping into the endogenous release of or control of the production of those chemicals within the body. Quick example, on the back from Brazil, as I was flying along, of course, you know, up all day, sleep well on traveling across the Atlantic recently, and maybe you're like me, Richard, when I'm on a plane, 
everybody around me is asleep in the middle of the night, and I'm the one guy who's sitting there reading the U because, you know, sitting upright in a, in a plane, even if I've got the seat all the way back, I just don't sleep. And as I'm flying along, I've got my visor on, you know, so everything's blacked out. I've got my earplugs in. Only the engines is making its way through. It's a sensory deprivation where there's very little sound, no light or imagery. And all of a sudden, as I'm sitting there very awake, very tired, and in this sensory de- deprived state, I see a plant. This plant appears to be under a red light. Now, this is, of course, just my mind, probably on the verge of entering a dreaming state, or interestingly, what one might even call a lucid dreaming state. And I'm looking at this plant, looking, you know, I put up air quotes, this is all in my mind, but I'm like, oh, that's a very vivid image in my mental space of this plant. Let's see where this goes. And as I'm sitting there, you know, with my nightshade on and with my earplugs in, you know, I just focus on this plant. And then suddenly I began to see these kaleidoscopic kind of images. And then I began to see faces, very, very distinctive eyes. This is all just happening as I'm sitting there very tired on a plane flying over South America in the middle of the night. Uh, when I should have been looking out the window, probably trying to observe UAP, right? But it was fascinating to me that some of the dreamlike imagery that my mind is producing is very similar to what people describe when they have taken something like ayahuasca. And I was just fascinated by this. I have to say I've never really had quite such a unique and truly psychedelic kind of experience. And I wonder if, you know, altitude, you know, again, the sensory deprivation, whatever it might have been in this circumstance that was conducive to having this experience. But I was really fascinated. And and again, it seemed to say to me that, yeah, perhaps under the right circumstances, there are ways that we can tap into that. But again, to your point, yeah, DMT dimethyltryptamine is actually produced in the body. Uh, Dr. Richard Strassman actually did a number of, or Rick Strassman as he is known, he did a number of DEA-approved studies back in the 1990s with DMT to try and understand those dynamics himself. And so, yeah, he also was told by some of the participants in that study that they had through meditation and things like this in similar experiences. And those patients also incidentally had a greater tolerance to the DMT when they were actually uh, given that substance during this study. So I found that interesting. And indeed, some would say that, yeah, you can have that experience without having to have any kind of induced element. You can actually tap into that somehow internally, endogenously. Isn't it interesting? I mean, you and I, listeners will have to take my word for it, but you and I did not do a pre-interview. I had no idea that just barely two weeks ago, you set out on this journey. And yet that was sort of my lead-in question. Isn't that interesting that somehow, I don't know, that you would have that experience, as I say, two weeks ago, and, and here we are discussing it without our having a prior discussion. So what happened when you finally arrived and went to Brazil? I, I think that the entire time I was there, I'm very uh, interested in Jungian psychology. And of course, Carl Jung gave us many things, and he gave us a lot of wonderful terminology that's still recognized in modern psychoanalysis and really, really even outside of that. But synchronicity was a term that he coined. And the entire time I was there in Brazil, there was a lot of synchronicity. And uh, here again, it's no surprise that you would lead off with those questions, and that would bring us to where we are right now. Uh, Indeed, very intuitive on your part, highly synchronistic. I'm kind of getting used to that these days, Richard. (laughs) While I was there was twofold. I had an opportunity to go down and visit this wonderful country that I'd never been to. I went down, spent a few days in Cuitiba in southern Brazil. Then we traveled up to Brasilia, the federal capital. Rented cars, and uh, my company and I drove about three hours out into the beautiful, it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but it's known as the Chapada dos Viaderos. Now, my friends had planned this trip already, 
But when it became a possibility for me to actually go down to Brazil and visit them, they had said, you'll want to come with us because this area, in addition to being a UNESCO World Heritage <laughs> National Park there in Brazil, it is known for its UFO sightings. And so when we arrive in the little town of Alto Parizu, it was fascinating because everything is alien. I mean, there's a hotel with a flying saucer out front. All the little shops have crystals and aliens, even very lifelike alien statues in many cases outside in front of these shops. There's a restaurant across the street called Area 51. And I was kind of amazed at just how much aliens have become a part of that culture and have been integrated. It's, it's not unlike some of the, I guess, the vibe that you would get in a town like Sedona, Arizona, for those who have been there. But on the actual experiential side of things, people in that town have said for years that they have seen UFOs. One story that had been published in the Brazilian UFO magazine, and uh, again, you know, one of the best uh, UFO researchers there in Brazil, A.J. Givard, yes. has written about this and others. But the uh, Brazilian UFO magazine actually talked about an instance there where years ago, a group of people there in Chapada had gone, this right near the town where we were staying in Alto Parizu, they had gone on this hike up to an abandoned mine. And again, Chapada is known for its crystals. There's an anecdote that back in the 1960s, NASA contacted scientists around that region and said, why is it so bright? You know, in the satellite imagery, it's so bright down there. And one idea had been that abundance of quartz might have actually raised the albedo and given it a brighter appearance on the landscape. So there's a lot of crystals, and you can actually go out into the waterfalls and the creeks and the rivers and find these. But they had gone up to a crystal mine, and on the way back, one of the women in the party vanished. She had been talking with a journalist, and then she just vanishes, and everyone says, where is she? And so they go looking for the woman, and they spend several hours trying to find her. And after several hours, they finally have to go back into Alto Parizo and get help from the police. And so they bring Policia back up, and they're looking around. And then they see, off in the distance, after three hours, Richard, a woman stand up from the ground some distance away, and she begins walking toward them. And there she was. And so they said, Donna, where have you been? And she said, I don't remember. She said, the last thing I remember was I looked up, and I saw a bright light, and I began to follow it. But she had bruises all over her body and had no recollection of where she had been. So stories like this are often told there in town, but incidentally, on our way in, we were driving in at night after flying all day, and as we're driving in, uh, my uh, one of my uh, traveling companions, Rafaela, who's in the front seat in front of me, I'm in the back seat of the car, we're both looking out the right, uh, to the right, out the window, and we see a little blue light moving along through the sky. She had been watching it for a second. I turn, I look, I see it. About the time she says, what is that? It just blanks out. Now, again, the skeptic in me might say, satellite i'm not sure but it's not unlike the kinds of lights that many people have said that they see there so again it was a journey into the heart of mystery and it got weirder while we were there <laughs> well we'll pick it up on the other side and we'll uh discuss your strange been wonderful journey in brazil south america micah hanks my guest researcher writer psychonaut blogger podcaster back with more of the conspiracy show in just moments my name is richard Serrett. don't go away Micah Hanks stays with us. So you mentioned you went down to Brazil. Your mission was twofold. One was to explore this UFO phenomenon. And, and it's interesting how much more open even the mainstream media and the government and the military in terms of transparency is about what's happening down there. Anything else UFO related without obviously giving everything away in the upcoming podcast? Anything else happen? 
certainly, and, and we can talk about that. I'll briefly say again, I didn't actually do the ayahuasca while I was there because of the situation with COVID-19. It was deemed a little unsafe. I was very glad, though, that when I went down there and there were certain dangers involved. I am a fully vaccinated American. I realize a lot of people you know, have different feelings about that. We won't get into that right now, but um, I did that, of course, knowing that I was going to be traveling and uh, I wanted the assurance of any protection I could have. But the Centers for Disease Control, of course, recognized Brazil at the time that I traveled there as a level four. That means do not travel. And when I got there, I'm, I'm happy to say that, again, their health and safety standards were just some of the best I've seen anywhere that I've gone. And incidentally, they were actually brought down to a level three, reconsidered travel while I was there. So again, that much was evident, but there still were some concerns. And that, of course, prevented me from doing all the things I hoped to do while I was there. And I hope to go back down at some point in the future and pursue those. But the other reason I was there actually was I love to travel. I love culture. I love language. I love cuisine. I love, you know, anthropology, obviously, is something that, I, you know, I'm fascinated by. And the opportunity to visit a UNESCO World Heritage Site, whether or not people see UFOs there, that was certainly something that uh, drew my attention. Then, and of course, the wonderful company, wonderful people, wonderful culture, wonderful time. But back on the UFO side of things, Indeed, while we were there, I was struck by the fact that as we, you know, you have to hire a guide to go into parts of the Chapada dos Viaderos. And many people, I think, when I was headed down, I told friends and going to Brazil, everybody, first they you crazy, it's not time to travel. But again, I, I took out two health insurance policies just to be on the safe side. And again, everything was great and so well managed while I was there. But the other side of it, of course, too, was that uh, people were thinking, oh, you're going to be in the jungle. You're going to be like Amazon. The Chapada is not a jungle. In fact, most would compare it more to the African savanna, but it is renowned for its waterfalls. And when you get down into these areas, the are, it does have what I would call very similar to a you know rich deciduous, like lots of ferns and palms and things like that. The other thing that I noticed, and this really fascinated me, in addition to anthropology, I really love geology. People I worked for a long time know that I spend a lot of time volunteering on archaeology sites. If you're going to know archaeology, you need to know a good bit about geology, too. And the granitic uh, rock, the abundance of quartz that I saw throughout the parts of the Chapada that we visited immediately caught my attention. And one reason why is because another place I had been that looked similar to this area and where you'll also find an abundance of granite and a whole lot of quartz is the Linville Gorge in North Carolina, just about an hour away from me, Richard. And in fact, just across the valley from the Limville Gorge is, of course, the famous Brown Mountain, another UFO hotspot because there are strange lights that have been seen there for at least decades, maybe centuries. It struck me that it was so similar in appearance here. But as we're hiring our guide and he's taking us down to uh, this particular portion of the Chapada, we go through this little kind of entryway that's a sort of mock village setup, and they have all of these little uh, religious um, iconography and, and things like this, little almost scarecrow type people. We walk into this little area where you can get filtered water, and there are strings of garlic hanging from the ceiling. Now, most people who have ever watched a vampire film, you know, they're familiar with universal uh, recognition of garlic as being a way to ward off evil spirits. There are brooms with crystals attached to them. No, no doubt are some of the indigenous uh, Shapata crystals uh, attached to these brooms. And so I was struck by the fact that there are all of these charms and things. And I'm thinking, what are they trying to ward off? As we trudge deeper into the Shapata, uh, Rafaela begins to ask, uh, speaking in Brazilian Portuguese, of course, ask our guide, have you ever seen anything unusual yourself? And sure enough, he tells us, 
On one occasion, I'd been driving my pickup late at night and a blue light showed up and it followed me for close to 20 minutes down the highway. And he said that it followed me and I didn't know what it was. And then eventually it just took off and vanished. Maybe not unlike the blue light that we had seen on our way into the Chapada. So here we were in the middle of this beautiful uh, you know, national park. Our guide is telling us about the UFO that followed him. And we're seeing the garlic and all the, the charms and things. And I joked with Rafaela. I said, I wonder if the garlic is there to keep the ovnis away. But another interesting little tie-in here. Back in the 1970s, there was a, a very well-known UFO kind of wave that occurred in northern Brazil around the area called Colares. And when this was underway, a lot of the locals who experienced what they perceived as attacks, because they said that beams of light sometimes would shoot out of these objects and crack the skin and leave little abrasions, they called these UFOs the OVNI, Chupa Chupa. Chupa, of course, anyone who knows about Chupacabra will recognize the right. So they all actually ascribed a sort of vampiric. So the Chupa UFOs that were seen in the 1970s by the residents around Colaris came to mind because I'm seeing the garlic. And again, that might be my own interpretation but i did i did wonder you know what are they actually uh presenting these charms against what are they concerned about no doubt people say that strange things happen in the shapata and our own guide said he'd seen one of these so-called ovnis so it was a really interesting experience talking with people and seeing their cultural ideas about what these objects might be now one final interpretation again noting the similarity geologically to the areas of the Limville Gorge and Brown Mountain, again, the Limville Gorge known for its waterfalls, for its abundance of quartz and granite and everything, and there are these ball lightning-like UFOs that appear there. One might interpret the UFOs seen around Chapada dos Viaderos as possibly being a manifestation of Earthlight, similar to what occurs at Brown Mountain or what occurs at Hestel in Norway and a lot of other geologically rich and seismically rich sites throughout the world. That's just a speculation on my part, but it's one possible mechanism for explaining some of the sightings. Why the cultural difference between Brazil and the United States or even Canada when it comes to the whole UFO ET phenomenon and their transparency, the way they treat it in the media without, although it's, it is changing somewhat up here, but in the media in South America, they don't treat it in a mocking fashion. And the military, people speak out regularly in the military and in the government about what's happening down there. Why the difference, do you suppose? That is a long and difficult uh, question, although I think that there are answers. I'll, I'll tell you this. In the 1970s, when the situation at Colares was underway, the Brazilian military, they sent the Air Force up there and they carried out a study that was known as Operação Prato. Prato actually means plate. And because there's not a direct equivalent for saucer, again, Operação Prato meaning Operation Saucer. And they had that actually gone footage you know, filmed, and the Brazilian uh, archives uh, also now, I mean, the military released a number of these files, and I know that A.J. Givard, who I mentioned earlier, who regretfully I wasn't able to meet with while I was down there, but I certainly hope to meet in the future at some point when time allows. He's, of course, very busy. Everybody's got things going on right now, but uh, A.J. has traveled uh, to the archives and has actually viewed some of their documentation on the Colaris affair. So, yes, their military had been very involved, and they do make available some of the information they collected on the phenomena to the public. In the United States, yes, things are a little different. And I've seen some commentators in the English-speaking world talking about how there seems to be a disproportionate amount of UFO activity in the United States, or at very least interest in it. And some have tried to argue it's a culture-bound phenomenon, to which I say that's nonsense. 
anyone who has looked at the history of the UFO phenomenon is well aware of the fact that South America has a very, very rich history of involvement. Uh, Jim and Carl Lorenzen, who ran the APRO organization back in the 1960s and 70s, they actually wrote a book. I think the book was published maybe in 66 or 67, but it was called UFOs Over the Americas. They had been receiving so many reports from South America that they traveled there themselves to you know, assess the UFO situation there. And much as I saw while I was there, in towns like Alto Parizo, I mean, they are hyper-aware, very interested, very accepting of the UFO idea and its cultural, uh, you know, uh, I guess their interest in it and their relation to it in their culture. That might be a way to say it. So to say it's something specific to North America, I say nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's as prevalent down there, and many people describe this phenomenon and having had experienced it. Um, as to why in the United States we tend to kind of keep it at arm's length, I think the simple answer is this. At one time, our Air Force also actively investigated UFOs, whether or not they did it uh, in the most scientifically efficient way is another question. But with Project Blue Book, the longest uh, running systematic UFO study that was carried out by a military organization, really, I think, anywhere in the world, what we saw was they handed off their reports first to the RAND Corporation, uh, or I'm sorry, they actually handed the uh, reports off to Battelle Memorial Institute, had them do a analysis in the 1950s. Then in the 1960s, uh, they tasked the University of Colorado under Edward U. Condon with studying it. Anyone who's familiar with the history of the Condon Committee and its an, uh, alleged analysis of UFOs knows this was rife with problems, and maybe we can get into that here in a moment. But uh, I think that the long-term effects of the Condon Committee's analysis of the Air Force's UFO data from Blue Book, it had a very negative impact. The military and the government in general has long attempted to kind of keep UFOs at arm's distance after that and as a result of it. And we're just now, like you mentioned, getting back around to a point where scientists, the military, and the media, and really just, you know, the general populace are starting to say there really is a there there. This long dismissed subject really warrants our attention, does it not? All right, Micah, we'll take another quick time out, come back and discuss more on the UFO ET phenomenon. Micah Hanks, MicahHanks.com, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Micah, you mentioned the Condon Report and how uh, that was kind of a, a wet blanket that was thrown on the, the whole UFO ET uh, forum uh, that lasted maybe, you know, up until recently, 2017, perhaps, tw- December 2017, and, and how one uh, sort of military or government-sponsored UFO study after another seemed to be designed as a wet blanket to, to uh, uh, suppress uh, or discourage further discussion. Did you want to talk some more about what what the Condon report set out to achieve and its long-lasting effects in more detail? I certainly would. And uh, to preface that briefly, again, when UFOs arrive, again, culturally speaking, in 1947, I would contend that they've been around much longer. We, of course, can look back to the Second World War and see the Foo Fighter reports. There were a number of reports between the turn of the century, 1900 in 1947 uh, involving UFOs, but they weren't called UFOs. They weren't even called flying saucers. They were known by different names, but again, these aerial phenomena and that time-tested you know, tested and true uh, human experience of seeing things in the sky that we can't explain 
I mean, that had been going on for a long time. But in 1947, right after the war, when Kenneth Arnold sees flying saucers over Mount Rainier and the press ascribes this new name to them and it becomes this media sensation, much like, for instance, Bigfoot would a few years later when a hoax carried out in California led to new cultural, cultural awareness being attributed to a phenomenon that I would contend had actually existed for quite a while. Uh, the UFO thing really kind of explodes after Arnold's observation. And then people in the military are saying that they're seeing these. I mean, there were some rather um, concerning incidents at actual military uh, facilities where these objects had been seen passing over controlled or near controlled airspace. And so, yeah, the newly formed U.S. Air Force, apart now from the U.S. Army, they took it very seriously. They said, okay, if right here in the years after the World War that we just emerged from, we are seeing what appear to be objects and thereby what seem to be technology under intelligent control. I mean, do the Soviets have something? Was this a Nazi technology that was captured? Is it our own? And if so, you know, who is creating this? I mean, it was a real question, a real problem. So in the early years with the Air Force's Project Sign, yeah, they took it really seriously when they couldn't find any feasible explanations and it was first insinuated that maybe we are looking at something other than human and therefore the only thing we could even conceive of is maybe extraterrestrial, top brass in Washington didn't like that. Uh, then the reformation of the U.S. Air Force project to evaluate these phenomena under Project Grudge took a very negative tone. They were being very dismissive, probably nothing to see here. Again, attitudes changed around 1952 when UFOs were seen over Washington, D.C., and people are saying, okay, look, if people are really seeing these things and they are now flying over our nation's capital on some of the most controlled airspace anywhere in the country, we really have to treat this seriously. This almost received national tasking, but before the CIA would really look at the possibility of looking at this as being a real security problem, an intelligence problem, they said, we've got to get some scientists to look at this. And this led to the Robertson panel where essentially a CIA-sponsored panel of scientists looking at what UFO data was on hand at the time led to a pretty familiar conclusion. Well, we don't see much here. Probably birds, probably other things, but definitely not extraterrestrials. Nothing to see here. Let's move along. Now, little did many of the investigators at the time who were looking into the UFO issue know that the Air Force had also supplied close to 3,000, maybe more, sightings they had on time to the Battelle Memorial Institute and had them conducting a, a statistical analysis of these UFO sightings. Uh, there had been, in other words, numerous attempts to try and look at this and see what we were dealing with, but that brings us back uh, around the end of the 1960s to the, to the Condon situation. What ended up happening there was the U.S. Air Force tasks Edward U. Condon and a group of investigators, many with no background in UFO research at all, they tasked them with trying to evaluate these Air Force reports after these numerous attempts over the years. And unfortunately, it was a biased study from the outset. There was a memo that was leaked around the time, actually during the time that the study was being carried out by Robert Lowe, one of the uh, really kind of the top guy under Edward Condon himself and the only guy who had access uh, and, and clearance to look at classified information that the uh, committee would be reviewing – and Lowe, in his memorandum that ended up being leaked, essentially said, you know, the trick here is going to be to make this look like an objective study, but to the scientific community, we want it to be clear that we're a bunch of non-believers with no expectation of finding any saucers. Uh, many of the group members ended up resigning. Some were excused. Uh, it was reformulated right there toward the end, and then when the actual report is released, Condon had written the 
introduction and then the conclusion, uh, there were some investigators in certain cases that were examined that were somewhat sympathetic toward UFOs, but in some total Condon and his group who had gone into it expecting to find nothing, they conclude, predictably, that, well, there's nothing that science benefits from through studying UFOs. We can't really justify taxpayer dollars being put behind this. Our advice as far as what to do with UFOs, do nothing. And following suit, right after the report was released, the U.S. Air Force, which I think in truth had been looking for a way out all along, and maybe that to an extent one could argue had even been coordinated somewhat with Condon and the biased researchers who went into this and came to the conclusions that they seemed to have had you know, from the outset. Yeah, the Air Force followed suit. They canceled Project Blue Book, and the long-term cultural effect is what we have seen up until 2017 where we began to see a bit of a, a shift in tone. All right, well, let's find out on the other side whether that shift in tone, December 2017 uh, New York Times article, uh, whether that will be long-lasting, whether it'll stick this time. Micah Hanks, my guest, micahhanks.com. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Micah Hanks stays with us. So we talked about the Condon Report, the cancellation of Project Blue Book, how everything seemed to change in 2017. In fact, there was a, a substantial change in the way that the media finally started to address this issue. Is it different this time? That's a very fair question because, again, there were periods even after 1968 with the conclusion of the Colorado UFO Project – and after 1969, with the formal closure of the book, interest surged in 1973. I mean, we saw a UFO wave that resulted in some of the most significant incidents, I think, that have occurred really over the last several decades. You know, we had, uh, you know, the coin UFO encounter where a group of military servicemen flying in a Huey helicopter actually are um, approached by a large object in flight, have an almost a near collision with this object, a lot of other unusual things happening. We had two men in Pascagoula, Mississippi, claim that they were actually taken aboard a egg-shaped object or what some might actually liken to a tic-tac in shape by today's standards, that they were taken aboard this craft and examined briefly, and they were very disturbed. Uh, went to the police that very night. There was a secret recording made in this sort of interrogation room where they were just being interviewed by the sheriff there in the town, but he left the room thinking these guys are going to spill the beans when I walk out. Left the tape running. They didn't know it was being recorded. And uh, Hickson and Parker, the two men, continue to describe this harrowing experience. And uh, yet again, I'll point out nearly religious terms. Um, I think Calvin Parker, who was a young man at the time, only in his 20s, was on the recording heard saying, oh, God, oh, God, I know there's a God up there. Despite periods over the years where we've seen tremendous surges in UFO interest, it has never managed to really garner the kind of attention and the serious attention both from scientists, from the military, from Congress – like it has since 2017. So what shifted and why does it appear to be sticking now or will it? Well, I would argue that in 2017, first we had a paper of record, the New York Times, reporting on a, at the time, this was new information, but, you know, in years advance of, uh, in advance of this 2017 article by Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper, keep in mind, Helene being the actual, uh, you know, Pentagon reporter there for the, uh, for the uh, New York Times, uh, they're reporting on the fact that for several years prior to that, there had been a Pentagon study or group, you know, called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, led by Mr. Lou Elizondo, and they had been looking at advanced aerospace threats. One 
uh, term that the Pentagon uses for what we might call UFOs or UAP. When this appears in the New York Times, people go, my gosh, our government really has been looking at UFOs like we all suspected all along. And now we have the New York Times seriously reporting on this. And again, the effect was, uh, to quote Ivan Sanderson when he uh, talked years ago about the term abominable snowman when it first appeared in a newspaper. He said the effect around the world was like that of an atom bomb. I would argue that tip appearing in the New York Times was similar. People took notice. And that momentum has continued to build because, of course, we've seen the U.S. Navy, uh, under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy, establish a UAP task force, which has really, I think, in recent months uh, gotten, gotten a lot of attention for its analysis of UAP. They issued a report to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and even though it was only nine pages, six pages of which actually contained information, the rest were just a cover page and then a little glossary or two and, and an appendix in the back. But in those six pages, it essentially says, look, there are several categories of phenomena we're looking at, airborne clutter, possible technologies from another nation, natural phenomena, but whatever the different varieties of UAP that we're looking at are, I mean, we must acknowledge there are some things in the sky, you know, more than 100, I mean, close to 140 or so instances of objects that have been observed by military servicemen and women that cannot be identified to date. Uh, we were able to identify one as being like a large deflating balloon, but I mean, all these other things, we don't know what they are. And so we need to continue to look at this. Now, what we have seen in recent days, and in fact, all of the momentum and interest, Richard, uh, led me and a group of colleagues of mine to actually found a publication and it looks at a lot of different issues in science, defense, technology, but the debrief, the debrief.org is the website. Uh, my initial idea, looking at all of these UFO developments, was I want to have a website that can treat this subject not like water cooler, not like, you know, uh, speculation. It needs to be addressed and reported on in the same way that anything in science or defense or in technology is reported in the news, kind of like what the New York Times did in 2017. The problem I knew was that Eventually, the media is going to get tired of all the UFO sensation. Where will this be? Where can we continue to report on this? And so uh, with my colleagues, Tim McMillan and MJ Benias, uh, last uh, December, we launched the debrief.org. And the debrief is a website that looks at technology, aerospace, defense, mm -hmm. science, astronomy. But we also regularly report on developments with UFOs. And what we've seen in recent weeks is that with the bills, and if they indeed are passed, Passed in their current form as they have been voted almost unanimously by the Senate and the House with the Intelligence Authorization Act, both last year for fiscal year 2021 and now looking ahead to 2022, we are seeing Congress continue to try and ensure access to information gathered by intelligence community agencies on UAP to the UAP task force. What does that mean? We're trying to make sure that the Navy's UAP task force has access to top secret information that spy agencies are gathering and have been gathering on UFOs. And they're supposed to uh, periodically, I think once every quarter, provide a report to Congress. Now, we're waiting to see, of course, if there are going to be public versions of these reports made available, like the uh, preliminary assessment that, that was delivered to the ODNI back in June. We're also waiting to see, and there was some discussion about this, I think, in, I believe this appeared in the Defense Authorization Act, uh, but there is discussion of actually replacing the UAP task force with an actual agency within government that is specifically tasked with looking at UFOs. This would be the first time we had such a organization looking at UFOs specifically since Project Blue Book. So 
the most important thing, two things that I've seen in recent days as a result of everything we've seen since 2017 and what Tim and MJ and I and our fine cadre of writers over at the debrief have been reporting on mm-hmm. is that not only do we see Congress back in the game and trying to work to legislate so that information on UFOs is being studied and is being reported on within government and not just being kept by the intel agencies. But as a result of that, and specifically as a result of the admission that appeared in the preliminary assessment that there are objects in our skies that we don't know what they are, we can't identify them, they should be studied. Well, scientists are saying, and when are we going to get access to that? And if we don't get access to that, then should scientists be doing our own independent study? And so many scientists, Avi Loeb of Harvard University, uh, Dr. Chris MP in Arizona, I mean, many astronomers and scientists are now saying, hey, we should be looking at this too, to have Congress, to have our military, to have scientists looking seriously at UAP and saying, we need to study this. It's a tremendous shift compared to what we've seen in decades past. The co-sponsors of this National Defense Authorization Act you just mentioned, Marco Rubio was one. The other, I think, was a congressman from Idaho, Representative Adam Smith, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. But regardless of individuals involved, what do you think motivated them? Do you do you think it's possible that in either or both cases they've had an experience that they haven't stated publicly? I think that the experiences that many of them have had is that they have received briefings. And again, I can only go off of what they have said publicly. But again, you mentioned uh, Senator Rubio from Florida. And, you know, Rubio has said, look, we've been getting briefings, you know, classified briefings on this for decades, you know, or at least for the better part of the last decade. This has been an issue that many in Congress have been aware of. But with all of the attention that's been put on this, we also uh, think it's incumbent upon us to to look at it and to make sure that we legislate in ways uh, that will ensure that our government is looking at this. I think that there is definitely a lot of pressure, I think would be the right word, but it's not a negative kind of pressure. I think it's a very, maybe momentum would be a better way to term this, but I mean, you know, guys like you and I, people, you know, again, citizens are writing to their congressmen and women and they're saying, look, this is important to us. We want you guys to look at this. And so I know Marco Rubio, in addition to having been briefed about this in the past, but also seeing the media attention, the military action, and also the advocacy among many in the public sphere, I think they feel compelled to try and you know push for this uh, within Congress. Uh, we also have seen Adam Schiff and others who have been involved in these uh, bills, uh, writing on the websites of these, um, of, uh, you know, in accordance with the bills and their release, but at these uh, the websites actually of the intelligence uh, committees respective to the House and the Senate, uh, Adam Schiff, like Rubio and others have also written statements saying, you know, we do take this seriously. We are looking at it. And so there are a number of members of the House and Senate who have publicly stated based on what we've been briefed about, you know, again, we haven't been shown the bodies or anything like that. We've been shown data that is being collected that shows that there are objects we can identify in our skies. And they've all been very clear about saying, uh, we don't know what they are, but they could represent a foreign technology. If we can't identify them and they are entering our controlled airspace and potentially representing a threat to our members of the military and really to the American way of life, we need to be looking at that. Now, briefly, a lot of people take issue with the word threat. They don't like the T word because they say nothing about UFOs has ever shown you know, to be threatening. The fact that our military keeps you know, fear-mongering, you know, this is just nonsense – Point taken, but I would say that, again, if our military continues to look at this as a potential threat, 
That doesn't mean that UAP have ever been overtly threatening anything, I would argue, though, that can enter controlled military airspace and we can't identify it. Of course, they're going to term that as a threat. And I personally don't really see the controversy, although, again, Leslie Kane, uh, who had co-authored the fantastic article in 2017 and has continued to write for the New York Times. She also has been a contributor along with Ralph Blumenthal at the debrief. Very glad to have both of them writing for our publication. But, you know, as she wrote there in her article a few weeks back at our site, uh, it's time to move the narrative out of threat and into science. And I do agree with her. I know why the military terms it as a potential threat, but really we need scientists looking at this. I want science personally applied towards study of UAP. Well, congratulations on your latest initiative, debrief.org, debrief.org. Micah, always a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Always my pleasure. Again, safe travels, my friend. Let's do it again real soon. Micah Hanks, micahanks.com. Coming up next, martial artist, author, survivalist, Stefan Verstappen, How to Build Communities. Back with more in Hour 2 right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 